Hey, we are in a series called Marriaging, and uh, for most of you in this room, you understand the term adulting, and that means uh, learning to be an adult or learning how to become an adult. And when it comes to marriage uh, and it comes to uh, relationships, a lot of times we focus a lot of our energy on getting married, but not a lot of energy on how to be married. In fact, here's a little secret for those who aren't married in this room. Many people actually get married, go into autopilot, and don't talk about or learn how to be married until they hit road bumps, and for some, until it's way too late when their marriage is in crisis. And so for those who are single in this room, this is incredibly important, not just for your relationships now, but your relationships in your future. Those who are newly married and those who are oldly married, this is as well incredibly important. Uh, And this morning, we want to talk about this uh, idea of how do you take two lives that are incredibly different, and how do you take them and actually be better together than you ever could apart? In fact, I think that's the dream, isn't it? For a marriage, for many of us, the dream is that you meet that someone, you meet that guy, you meet that girl, and it sparks, and it's fireworks, and it's fantastic, and that your future together is far better than you ever could be on your own. And so to do that, we're actually going to cover perhaps one of the most misused and abused texts in all of Scripture. Uh, Many people have pulled it out of context uh, and have used it for their own agenda. And yet, it is an incredible passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and it starts this way. So I'll give you a little, like, hint. It starts this way. Wives, so it's talking to wives, submit to your husbands. Now, before you walk out of this room, (laughs) let let me get there, all right? Because this is one of the most misused verses, Ephesians 5, verse 22. But we're going to look at not just verse 22, but through verse 33. And here's what's so incredible. Do you know what comes before verse 22? Verse 21. And some of you are sharp this morning. It's crazy. Here's here and here's this is what we talked about last week and this is often missed and not talked about but this is the most powerful relationship principle on the planet verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 says this and this is the most powerful relationship principle this is true for you whether you're married or not this is true in every relationship this is true for every follower of Jesus and this is the most powerful relationship principle on the planet. It is mutual. Help me out. Okay, now say it like you mean it. Mutual submission. That's it. This is the principle that is, has the potential to change the relationships in your life for the better. It is mutual submission. Ephesians 5 verse 21, the apostle Paul says this way, submit to one another. So this isn't just a marriage verse. This is a life verse for all relationships. Submit, and remember what we said about submit? It's that I'm going to leverage all of my power. I'm going to leverage my time. I'm going to leverage my assets for your benefit. That's what submit means. In fact, you can write in there if you want support. You can write prefer. But submit to one another, and here's what makes it so powerful out of reverence, out of honor for Jesus, out of honor for Christ. Not because he deserves it, not because she earned it, not because he's having a great day, but even in the moments when they do not earn it or deserve it, when they're acting like jerks, submit, honor, prefer, leverage all that you have for their benefit and well-being. Why? Out of reverence, out of honor for what Christ has done for you. That we would live, this is so good, that we would live in a perpetual awe and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that it would just ooze out to those around us. That's what he's saying here. And so our approach is then this, a love marked by giving, not getting. 
a love marked by giving. It's all about giving, and it's not getting. It's not this uh, tit-for-tat, I did this, so you do that idea. And the objective is to bring out the very best in them. Like, like, think about what would change in some of your relationships if your love was marked by giving and your goal was, how can I bring out the very best in you? Like, I just want to make you better, and I'm going to take all my time, I'm going to take my energy, my effort, my, what I have to help you become better. And the motivation is out of honor for Jesus. It's just out of honor for Jesus. Out of honor for what he's done for you, what he's done for me, I'm going to love you. And so the challenge in this is that when you take two lives, what you find is oftentimes, actually all the time, they're not the same. They have different thoughts. They think about things very differently the way, than the way you think about them. They grew up in a very different home than you had. Perhaps has even some different values, different ways about going about things. Uh, emotionally, they might respond to things different than you. Some might get really fired up and some might just be very even killed, right? The way they make decisions might be a very different process. And that is actually part of the challenge, right, of marriage is it's these two very different people trying to make one beautiful picture. How do we become better together even though we are so very different? Let me give you a picture for what a great marriage is to be like. A great marriage is, is much like a dance. In fact, this is the picture my wife uses all the time. We were out uh, Thursday night with a young couple that's engaged to be married, and um, it was really fun because uh, I love talking to couples about um, life and relationships. I love talking to everybody about life and relationships, and specifically Jesus. But we're out hanging out with them, and it was so much fun. And I wasn't feeling very good, uh, and it was just amazing to just kind of kind of sit at the table, be there, and just watch my wife go. And she's so incredibly wise. And so she gave this illustration talking about marriage being like this incredible, beautiful dance, much like La La Land. <laughs> And, but here's the thing. I'm, I, I'm not actually, uh, Jenny and I used to love dancing when we were first married. Uh, it wasn't like this kind of dancing. It was swing dancing. Uh, anybody else swing dance? That was really big when I was in high school, college. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I swung dance. Okay. Get over it. Okay. Uh, but here's the thing about a dance. Like when you, I'm not like into dance per se, but when I see incredible dancers go, I'm captivated. I'm in awe. It, it just draws me in. It's beautiful. It's poetry in motion. It, it's incredible as you watch them work and move across the stage and, and seamlessly move together and pull each other to and fro and, and the rhythm and the beauty and the balance of it all. I mean, it's, it's captivating, isn't it? And yet, what is interesting about a beautiful dance is, is what we don't see. The hours, the work, the, the amount of communication, the, the working on a step and stepping on toes, the not quite getting it right, the continuous effort. Isn't it amazing that something that looks so effortless actually took an incredible amount of effort? And see, marriage is much like this, that it is this process. It is this giving and taking. It's this learning how you work together. It's maybe you showed up into marriage and, and you do hip-hop and he does country. And you're trying to figure out, okay, we're doing the two-step and they're doing, you know, popping. You're like, okay, how are we going to make this work? And you're learning how to dance Together, two very different lives, becoming one, taking on this process. And here's what we know about dance, too. It also can be beautiful, but it also can be what? Very awkward. <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite, for those of you who've never seen that movie. 18 and younger, is um, you probably never heard of that movie. Uh, 
But here he is, he's dancing on the stage all by himself, doing his own thing. And if we're really honest, when we're talking about marriage, most of the time, here's what it is. It's two people dancing to their own beat and their own rhythm, frustrated that the other one isn't dancing with them. And it becomes incredibly awkward. And so we blame and so how do we experience this better together life? And the Apostle Paul in Matthew or in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he's going to give, okay, to wives, here's what it looks like to begin to move together in rhythm. And then he's going to go to husbands. Here's what it looks like to move together in rhythm. Now, to understand this passage we can't just read it as is because what we tend to do is interpret a very 1950s understanding of marriage back into this text. And it couldn't be further from the truth. So I'm going to do a little bit of historical work with you, okay? And so um, what you need to realize is that the gospel of Jesus was incredibly subversive. It was counterculture in every way. It still is today. In fact, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul said this, that, that now, as a result of Jesus, as a result of the gospel, as a result of our relationship and being made new in Christ, because of that, now there is neither Jew nor Greek. Like the racial barriers have gone. And then he goes, there's neither slave nor free. Like the socioeconomic barriers, that the status kind of that we hold over one another, like I'm free, you're not, you're down here or whatever, gone. And then he says this, neither male nor female, gone. But in Christ, all are one. Now, here's what equality doesn't mean. Because this is something, a brand new concept in the ancient day. It was all hierarchical. It was all about who had the power. And whoever had the power made the rules. And so it was patriarchal, hierarchical way of living. And so as a result, men got to make the rules simply because physically they were stronger and could enforce their will. And what equality doesn't mean, by the way, that is that we're all the same. Right? We're not all the same. And that's, that's one of these kind of subtle things that's coming into our conversation today, that equality. Equality means that we are equal in value and worth and dignity, that you are made in the image of God, and so as a result, have intrinsic value. And so, yes, we celebrate that every person on the planet should have equal opportunity, equal pay, should be treated with equal dignity. But let's be careful lest we say that every single person is the same because then we try to have people treat us the way we want to be treated instead of appreciating and saying, you know what, your differences is actually what makes you beautiful. Okay? So, back to the historical context. This patriarchal, male-dominated, uh, I love how Andy Stanley says, might makes right. That's the, that's the understanding of the day. Well, in the ancient day, there was something known as household codes. In the Greco-Roman world, these were household codes uh, that were the standard for how um, life was to be operated. In fact, in, in Rome, the Pax Romana, if you studied about that, the Peace of Rome, uh, part of what they said held together the Pax Romana were these household codes or the order upon which that um, life was supposed to be uh, operated within the home unit. In fact, they went over three key areas. The key the area of a husband to a wife, uh, the area of a child to a father, and the area of a slave to a master. And in all three of these areas, uh, it is the, the wife, the child, and the slave is all subservient to the master, the husband, the father. They, the wife, the child, and the slave all have things that are demanded and required of them, yet the husband, the master, and, and the uh, uh, father had no stipulations or no regulations for how they were to act or treat 
one another. And then the gospel comes in. Think, imagine how counterculture this. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Remember? He just said this, right? That there's neither male nor female. There's neither, you know, slave nor free. Whoa, counterculture. And so there's these household codes that were written. In fact, Aristotle was one of the first to write this. And he writes this, of the household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is that the rule of a master over slave, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and a father rules over uh, wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal rule uh, over his wife, a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and the full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. Well, then we move on more into the time of Jesus when the Apostle Paul is writing, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo writes this in the household code. He says, wives must be in servitude to their husbands, a servitude not imposed by violent, ill-treated treatment, but prompting obedience in all things. Parents must have power over their children. The same holds for any other person over whom the man has authority. And so enters the gospel into this male-dominated, hierarchical, patriarchal society, and all of a sudden, there's a new way of being and existing. See, the New Testament documents are the first documents in human history that elevated the equality of all of humanity. And this is incredible. And so Paul, when he writes Ephesians chapter 5, he actually is very tongue-in-cheek giving a nod to the household codes and how it now works under the gospel. And this is incredible. And so what he does is he talks about the role or the, of husbands and wives, fathers and children, and slaves and masters. In fact, after Easter, we're going to do a series on work, and we're going to talk about uh, that section in and of itself. Yes, we will deal with the issue of slavery and how do we wrestle with that in the Bible as well there. But here's what's amazing. What you're holding in your hand Think about this. What you're holding in your hand, in your New Testament, is the first ever written document that ever held a man to a standard, that ever called them out and said, this is the way you are supposed to love as Jesus loved. It's no longer, hey, wives, you need to be subject. Children, you need to be subject. Slaves, no, no, no. Hey, husbands. Hey, fathers. Hey, masters. And all of a sudden, it is now the elevation of all of humanity. And so, as we dive in, that is the backdrop for the text we are about to read that tells us or informs us of how do we be better together. And you'll see that there is a call for the wives and there is a call for the husbands. The call for the wives is honoring support. This honor, this honor and support. Honoring support. In fact, if you're a, a woman, a wife, would you write that down right there? Honoring support. I know we have many in this room who are not wives, but just write that down. This whole idea of I'm going to honor you, I'm going to support you. Now, if you're a man or a husband, you are not allowed to write it down. This is not to you. This is not for you. And you are never allowed to hold this over another. Okay, here's what it says. The Apostle Paul says, wives. Who's it written to? Wives. Who's it not written to? Husbands. Yeah, so stay out. <laughs> Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay, same exact word up top in Ephesians verse 21, submit to one another. This is a call for all of us. So what does that mean? A, a love marked by giving, not giving, to bring out the best in the other person out of honor for Christ. Not because he's better, not because he's smarter, not because he earned it, not because he's more capable, as Aristotle would say, but because of honor for Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, 
As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And all the ladies did a big gulp. Because that's been pulled out of context so often. It's been used as a way, and sadly at times, to push others down. And yet this is one of the most liberating texts in marriage. He's going to say, wives, out of your honor, out of your relationship with Jesus, not because he's anything special. You might have thought that when you first got married, but now you realize he's not. <laughs> you go, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to honoring, I'm going to have an honoring support. I, like, I'm going to honor you. Just by the way, ladies, what you need to know is every single guy is desperately insecure. And it means the world when, when there's a, a, a treating, treatment of honor and support like, hey, I'm behind you. I don't know if you've ever seen little boys at a playground, um, and you see the difference between the way little boys and little girls play, um, and this isn't always the case, but it's generally the case. You know, little girls, man, they're, they're always in relationship, always talking. They're very mature about it, and boys are over there, like, beating each other over, jumping off these sort of things, but do you know what every little boy wants their mom or dad to do when they're playing? You guys don't. Huh? What did you say? Watch them. That's exactly right. Look at me. Look at me. I just want to let you know, um, the little boy doesn't grow out of the man. It just doesn't. And so often that honoring support is just affirming, hey, you're doing okay. Hey, you're doing well. Hey, I'm proud of you. Hey, you keep going. <laughs> If your husband or guy in your life takes the lead spiritually, um, would, would you just affirm it, even if it's terrible? Like, even if it's the most awkward thing in the world, even if you're going like, wow, um, I kind of feel farther from God after that, but <laughs> uh, thank you, right, right? Would you just honor and support? But let me tell you what submission doesn't mean. Submission doesn't mean husbands make all the decisions. Submission doesn't mean husband works, wife stay at home. Submission doesn't mean wife is a doormat, no opinion. Submission doesn't mean husbands demand his way and says, well, you have to submit. It's not what it means at all. In fact, um, one of the things that I, I've found, I have the most incredible, strong leader wife who provides an honoring support. And let me tell you, just to give you an example of what that looks like. Uh, years ago, I had this, um, like I read this book and I got really fired up about it. And I decided, I was like, man, I want to give all our savings away. Like, I just got really fired up, and like, yeah, I don't know if you ever had moments like that where you just get really fired up, and you read something like, I just want to give it all away. No, we have kids, and we have all the, I'm not thinking about the future, I'm just in the moment, you know? And I tell my wife that, and I tell Jenny, I want to do this. And she's like, okay, I'll pray about it. I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably pray about it too, that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm checking back in, I'm like, oh, what do you want to do, what do you want to do? And, and about a month later, she said, you know, Ryan... I've been really praying about it, and I'm glad that you're fired up about this. But I just don't have the same conviction as you. The Spirit of God hasn't put that on my heart. But if you feel really convicted about this, if that's what you feel like uh, you're called to do, then I'm for you. I'm behind you. Go for it. Now, I learned a valuable lesson years before that, that you always make big decisions in terms of we, never me. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me, lives in Jenny, and lead us together. And so oftentimes, in this verse, guys use it as a way to just run ahead instead of walking with. You want to learn to dance? Wait together on the Spirit of God to lead you in step with one another. It's my really bad form of a waltz right here. Okay. 
But that's what it looks like to honor support, but also be strong and have an opinion and be able to be, hold those two in balance. The call for the wife is this honoring support. The call for the husbands, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Wives, women, you, do not, you are not allowed to write that down. This is for the man, okay? And by the way, this doesn't get to be something that you get to beat them up about either. You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to meet my needs. You're supposed to blah, blah, blah. Why aren't you more like that guy, which you only see on like TV or you only see, you know, in like little snippets. So you see their best version of them, by the way. And so you compare their best version to the everyday reality of what you're living with and be more like him. Why don't you love like that guy? Blah, 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 blah. That is not okay. Okay. But men, men, sacrificial love. Husbands, who's it written to? Love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to be present and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Holy cow. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Also, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but feed, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, and next week we're going to talk about this. He quotes Genesis, and next week we're going to talk about in pursuit of intimacy. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The call for husbands is sacrificial love. When I do uh, weddings, I really like to do this. And so I teach very briefly through these passages. And I read the part for uh, the wife, and I often put their name in. But if you look in your notes, okay, remember, this is the first ever written document in history where we are calling, have ever had a man called to be accountable and how they're supposed to live out their lives as a husband. And do you notice the difference in length between the wives and the husbands? I mean, just Paul got going, right? It's like, okay, we're going to address husbands, and there's been some stuff we needed to address for a while, so here we go, because that's what the gospel looks like. That's what a Jesus-centered marriage looks like. So what does sacrificial love look like? Well, Jesus, think about this, sacrificed his life for you when you were wrong. He gave his life away when we were wrong absolutely wrong. He, he, he gave up his rights even though he was right. I hope you're catching some of the realities of what it looks like to be sacrificially loving your spouse because instead of going, no, I'm right and so I'm going to demand my way or you know what, you're wrong and so I'm going to hold it over you. It is this sacrificial loving laying down your rights and your desires for their best. He pursued you when you were pushing him away. Seek the highest good. Go all out in your love. Wives, an honoring support. Husbands, a sacrificial love. Then he sums it up, verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect or honor her husband. Now, I don't know if you caught this because verse 21 is the big idea principle, mutual submission. Then he begins to apply it for wives and husbands. But I don't know if you caught this, but Paul is essentially saying the same thing, just a little bit different. Why? Because we're a little bit different. 
And so if we want to sum this up into a single sentence for every single one of us, it would sum up this way. And if you remember the household code, right, for the Greco-Roman world, this is the New Testament marriage code. This is the gospel code for a Jesus-centered marriage. And it goes this way. Compete to be selfless. Compete to be selfless. Not compete to be heard. Not compete to have your way. Not compete to make sure that they get theirs and make sure, but compete to be absolutely selfless. The first lesson I believe every newly married should learn is exactly how selfish they are. Like in the first year or two, you realize, I am so incredibly selfish. And then when you have kids, it's like a whole nother level, right? It tells you, whoa, I had no idea how selfish you are or I am. I know how selfish you are. I just didn't know how selfish I was. Now, singles, you can begin to practice this already, right? This isn't, doesn't have to wait for relationships. Thinks how it changed your friendships. Now, I want to add a little something. I want you to write a little something under here. Compete to be selfless for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Did you notice, and I underlined it, that the one consistent thing for the, the calling of the wives and the calling of the husbands was Jesus? It's Christ the center, the focal point, the motivation, the model, like we said last week, for Christ's sake. Compete to be selfless for Christ's sake, not for your sake. Not because you think it's going to somehow make your life better or easier. Compete to be selfless for Christ's sake, not for his or her sake, as somehow you are this amazing like person and you're just going like, oh, I'm just going to do it for them, for them, for them. Because you can't do that for long until you become bitter underneath. Because you will build up this, I've been doing this for them for so long. You do it for Christ's sake. Or another one, don't do it for your kid's sake. Well, I have young kids. I'm going to compete to be selfish just in this season for my kid's sake. And here's why this is so important. The greatest enemy of a beautiful dance, the greatest enemy of an incredible marriage is pride. Pride. If you'll write the word pride out, what is right at the center of pride? I. See, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. It's like thinking of yourself less, right? It's not like I'm lower or less than. It's just not thinking about yourself. Pride is when I am at the center. And you can be at the center and have a very low self-worth, and you can be at the center and have a very like egotistical self-worth. But the thing that will compete and that will kill your marriage is pride when it's all about you. I love what Beth Moore wrote in her, um, her book, uh, Praying God's Word. In fact, uh, it's in your notes that you can uh, check it out. Great, great book. But she wrote this kind of, I don't know, maybe a poem about pride. And she says this, My name is Pride. I am a cheater. I cheat you of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you deserve better than this. Quote, deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you are too full of me to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you are wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in a mirror than out a window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because nobody's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of God's glory because I convince you to seek your own. My name is Pride. I am a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm looking to make you a fool. God has so much for you, I admit. But don't worry. 
If you stick with me, you'll never know. The marriage code can beat to be selfless for Christ's sake. It gets you in rhythm with God and you learn to begin to step together in this dance of a relationship. Well, let me give you just maybe a few practical ways as we close of like, how do you begin to dance together in a relationship? What does it actually look like to compete to be selfless? Uh, and many of these came actually out of that night that we're sitting on Thursday talking with that uh, young couple engaged to be married. And I just was listening to my wife and just in awe of her wisdom and just going like, man, I, I didn't have much to give like I said that night and just was going like, man, she's good, you know? <laughs> and so I just was mentally taking notes the whole time. And so let's look at learning to dance together. Let me, I just want to give you six steps. Shatter the stereotypes. Like learning to compete to be selfish, shatter the stereotypes. It might be expectations that you walked into a relationship with, into a marriage with. And here's the reality. Oftentimes, we don't know our expectations or that we have expectations until they've been violated. So you begin to realize, I'm really angry about that. I'm really angry that that didn't happen. I'm angry that this happened. That's a sign for you to look and dive deeper, not go outward with it. It might be traditional roles that you grew up with, perhaps thinking about this, like, hey, you know what? The man's supposed to work. The man's supposed to make all the money. Yeah, mm, here I'm, man. Hear me roar, right? The woman's supposed to be in our house. That's actually not what this text says. Play to your strengths. When we were first married, I worked at a coffee shop and a church leading worship, both very part-time. And my wife worked uh, at a crisis pregnancy center, and she actually had insurance for us, and she made more money. When we got married, it was her decision. She's like, man, when our kids are little, I really want to be at home with our kids. These are the precious few moments that I have, that we have, and I want to make sure I'm there. And so she decided, even though she has an incredible HR degree from Cal Poly, go Mustangs, that she decided to stay home and be with the kids. And so for the last 14 years, that is what she has done. Not because I said that is her place, but she said, this is where I want my place to be in this season. And now that our kids are in school and there's a different season that we're in, entering, she's get, got her real estate license and stepping into that. And we're learning that. So here's the reality. For the last 14 years, I've made the lion's share of the money. However, I'm a pastor. She's going into real estate. Chances are she's going to make more money than me. I'm praying she does. <laughs> And for some, you need to realize, okay, play to your strengths. When it comes to finances, okay, who's better at finances? Play to your strengths. Would you shatter some of the stereotypes you have and just go, okay, compete to be selfish. How can I make you better? How can I make you better? Step three, it's two. Become a student of your spouse. Take an interest in what they're interested in. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, if you don't know, uh, check out the five love languages and, and, and really become a student of them uh, and what, how they give and receive love and, and ask questions. Like, ask lots of questions. And I'm terrible about asking questions because my wife's actually more the extrovert. I'm a little bit more the introvert in our relationship. I'm a homebody. I love staying at home. I don't ever really like going out, but when I do, I enjoy it. Um, and so my job is more re relational. And so by the time I get home, I'm all out of questions. I don't. And so we would go on dates and my wife, incredible question asker, and she'd ask all these questions. And that's it. That's all I had. It was just a blank stare. And oh, my goodness. And then it finally clicked. I'm like, okay, uh, after lots of discussions called arguments. Um, <laughs> and I started to practice. I'm like, okay, I, I'm not a great question asker. So I started preparing questions in advance. 
Yeah, husbands, if you're not a great question asker, that will get you major points. Just saying. But become a student of your spouse. Step three, practice dating for life. Practice dating for life. This looks different in different seasons. And um, so if you're single, practice dating. Can I, I just, I want to say something to singles because we got something weird sometimes happening in Christian culture when it comes to dating. And like if you go out for a cup of coffee and you, a guy and a girl, and then all of a sudden everybody's talking about, oh my goodness, what is that? And then they go out with someone else for a cup of coffee. Oh my goodness, shut up. Just go on dates. Date lots of people. Enjoy, discover. That's fine. That's the point of dating is to stink and discover and learn about other people. Okay? Stop the weirdness. Okay? Don't let the Christian weirdness come into that. Okay, that's the end of my soapbox right there. Sorry. <laughs> but when you get into a committed dating relationship, it comes so naturally, right? And you're dating, it's like fun, it's enjoyable, you're just doing your thing, and you're like, cool. Uh, but then what happens is then you become engaged and then newly married, and it starts to turn into something, well, you have life, you have work, you have jobs, and what became natural now has to become intentional, and it's, and it's this weird shift for some of you because you're having to schedule a date. And you're like, but we used to just hang out all the time, and it was awesome, and now like our work and the stuff's competing, and we have to actually plan a scheduled date and it feels wrong because you had to actually plan it or you had to set aside time and you're like, man, I, we should just naturally want to do that. And no, you have to do it intentionally. But I got news for you. When you have young kids, it changes even more. One of the hardest seasons for us, I think, in our like, connection, relational connection was when our kids were very little, when we had babies. By the way, your intimacy changes during that season, too. We can talk about that next week. But dating was really, really hard. Well, we didn't have a lot of money. We couldn't afford babysitters. And so one of the ways that we did it, we would do date nights at home and get a nice bottle of wine, you know, just to step up from two-buck chuck. And then <laughs> just had to qualify a nice bottle of wine. And, and, then, and then a... a, a, a good piece of chocolate, and try to get 15 minutes without any kids interrupting, right? That, that's part of it when you have kids. We, you know, just do our best to, like, hide from them, you know, and, <laughs> and then as they got older, we've been able to do a little more dating. Now, here's, here's the thing about it, is what happens is the pressure of life, the demands of work, the demands of kid life especially and some of those sort of things in school begins to squeeze out your time for one another. And, and this happens in every relationship regardless of whether you have, have kids. And if you're not intentional, what you'll find is that you, you just are kind of housemates but you're not best friends. See, the goal of dating is to grow in intimacy, to have a lot of fun, to grow as best friends. So that's why we date for life. And one of the things we found is because our dates became inconsistent, that we would go on a date and all we would do is fight. Now, there's nothing more frustrating to me is to pay for a fight. <laughs> so I paid for a babysitter. Then we're at this nice restaurant. And in my head, I mean, this is the way I think. So I'm looking at... I'm paying all this money just to have an argument. What in the world is wrong with this picture? And, and that's what happened to us. We got stuck where every date we went on, we fought. I began to loathe dating because I'm like, oh, every time we get in a fight, well, why? Because we were disconnected and we weren't talking about what's most important during the rest of the days around us. And so we had to shift. And we started something called date and details. One thing that my wife and I have in common that's the same is we love to have fun. We love to have fun. And so we can't just do something unfun like finances. I know some, for some that's fun. God bless you. But we can't do something unfun like finances without connecting it with something fun. And so we did something called a date and detail where we'd gather and talk about three core areas, our family, our future, and our finances. Our family, our future, and our finances. And we talk about that. We sit down with our calendar. And what it did, it allowed us to process life, the important things. It allowed us to go through all this so that we could then, when we got on our date, have fun. 
We didn't, we didn't have to have everything boiling out of that. But would you practice dating for life, whether you're single, whether you're married? Uh, step four, always speak highly. Always speak highly, both privately and publicly. Always, always, always. A sacrificial love always speaks highly. And honoring support always speaks highly. And I, be honest, it's an area that I'm growing in and have violated. So I believed that I had the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And uh, I was wrong. But I've blown this actually trying to be funny when we're hanging out in a group. And unfortunately, I found out later it was funny at my wife's expense. Oh, man, that uh, sucks. But where we would always speak highly and always honor with our words. Step five, pursue those a step ahead. And if you're single, pursue those a step ahead in life, whether it's with their relationship with Christ, whether it's in their relationship with others. If you're married or engaged, pursue those just a step ahead in marriage. Uh, one of the things that we do is we're, we're looking for families that have high school kids that we love the way they do family and want to learn from them because our kids are quickly entering that stage. But pursue those a step ahead. Uh, and then finally, prioritize prayer. I didn't leave this at the end to be an afterthought. I left it at the end because it's the most important thing. If you do one thing, if you do anything, do this. Prayer is powerful. God can do in you, God can do in her or in him what you cannot when you are on your knees in prayer before him. Would you prioritize prayer? And for some, in the area of relationships, you need healing. Maybe your relationship needs to be restored. Maybe they need a change of heart or the revival needs to happen. The, w- the way I do it's real simple because I, w- I wasn't always very good at this. And I don't know what you think like I do. I think sometimes people have like this... Uh, this weird view of like, especially as a pastor, like you think we sit around and do Bible studies and pray all the time. No, no, we don't do that. We're just real. We're normal. We're real people. We fight. Um, this is hard work for me. And so I had to put a system. I have a four by six card. Every morning I, I review four by six cards because I know whatever I focus on, I, I tend to gravitate towards. Whatever you focus on, you gravitate towards. So I'm going to put something in front of me daily just to keep it in my heart and mind. And so on this card, I just have Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And it's just that fresh affirmation like, okay, today, God, as for me and my house, we are going to serve you to the best of our ability, imperfectly, brokenly. But that's our, that, that's our goal in this moment. And then I wrote down everybody in my family's name. So I have my wife, Jenny, Ella, Ryder, Miles. And I, I got to be honest, it was blank for a couple months as I just had it, because I just wanted God. I just started to sit with God. And God, I want a prayer for each person in my household that's like from you. Like, I want a prayer from you for my kids. Like, I, I don't know about this world. I don't know about the world they're growing up in. And, and they're hitting the teenage years as they're coming around the corner. Like, I want to be praying a prayer that you gave me. And so it's blank. And I was kind of frustrated that it's blank. I'm like, gosh, pray for Ella. Blank. (sighs) Jenny, I wrote down, thrive in this next season of life as she transitions to working. I couldn't be more proud of her. But I'm praying, God, would you help her thrive? So I just take a moment in the morning. It's just my system. You don't have to do this. Just how I do it. And I just pray, prioritize, means it's first of my day. And eventually God just gave me what I think was a little sentence for each of my kids. I just begin to pray for my wife, my kids. And I think for some, when it comes to prayer, you're like, I don't even know what to pray. And I get that. I've had that so many times. When you don't know what to pray, I'd invite you to pray Scripture back to God. Pray God's Word back to God. 
and I just put in here Ephesians 3. It's Paul's prayer. And as we close this morning, I just want to pray this over you. I want to pray God's word over you this morning. Because here's what I know. Some people have some backgrounds with relationships that when we're talking about marriage, you're like, I don't ever want to be married because of what I saw. And you need healing and wholeness and some restoration. You need a God vision for it. And for some, you're in a marriage and it's so hard. And I've been so like weighted down for this series like so weighted down because I know the pain and the heartache and what people are going through and relationships going to be the highest part of your life oftentimes, but they also can be the hardest. So when, if you don't know what to pray, pray scriptures. And I just want to pray this passage over you. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen Strengthen each person in this room with your power through the Spirit and their inner being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. God, I just pray for relationships that are just on the edge right now, that you would supernaturally fill them with your strength and power God, I pray for those that are running on their own, that they would lean into you, that they would experience the empowering indwellment of you, Jesus. And I pray, I pray that you would be rooted and established in love. You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. I pray that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Pray that you would be overwhelmed with his love, like the waves of his love would just crash on you until you couldn't stand anymore and where you would just release all of you into all he is, where you would find the sweetness in surrender, the freedom in surrender because you are so deeply loved that you would actually trust God's love for you, that you would trust God's good for you, that you would understand that he gave his life for you, that he loves you and you would just soak in his love for you and it would just blow your mind. And for some, you're in a space where the mountain seems too high to climb. The mountain could never be moved. I just want to remind you of who we are speaking to at this moment. Like our conversation isn't empty. It is going to the God of the universe who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And so as you compete to be selfless, may you do it according to his power that is at work within you. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.